When did shaving get so expensive? Well, luckily, there is Harry's. Harry's starter set is just $15, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I prefer shave cream because I don't understand how shave gel works. As an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with my code WT. That stands for What's Tech, but it's a lot shorter, so it'll be easier to remember when you apply the code saving yourself money. It, it makes sense. Anyway, after using the code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Harry's.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men and women. For a superior shave at an incredible price, go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you that $5 off you type in the code WT with your first purchase. Again, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter my code WT at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. Return of the Jedi came out when I was seven years old, and I was already part of a big movie-going family, but that was the, the first time I remember that there was something that we were really excited about. Uh, my dad bought tickets about a week before, and every day before the movie came out, I would go up to his dresser and look at these three blue tickets that said Return of the Jedi, and just could not wait. Uh, so the day came, and when there's a huge line out the door, um, we're waiting in there, and I remember funneling in, I remember getting this commemorative program that had all these cool pictures, and I was so excited about Jabba's Palace and everything. Wait, gave, wait, wait, wait. They gave you programs. Yeah, you could, well, they didn't give, you could buy. <laughs> okay, yes. there, there it is. I, I yeah. was like, there's no such thing as a free lunch, especially in the world of Star Wars. Yes, yes, you could buy one. Um, but cool pictures, Daba's Palace, excitement, excitement. And uh, I got one for the Goonies too, by the way. That was a different story. Oh. Um, but uh, I saw the movie and I was Way to on brag. <laughs> <laughs> I was holding on to this program so tight during the movie because I was like so into it. Because when you're a kid, the Ewoks are amazing and the sure. Death Star 2 is amazing. I didn't realize that the the buttered you know popcorn was making the ink on the back of the program run, and I had essentially oh, ruined it because no. I was holding onto it too tight during the thing. Uh, but I got out, and I I loved it. I was moved. I was excited. And as I talked to my friends and I talked to the people, I realized that there was this you know communal moment happening across my the town I lived in, across the state, across the country, and across the world of having this adventure together. That's something that is very very unique to to you know a film that opens broadly across the world. Uh, it's kind of one of the reasons I still love movies today. I I have a similar connection with Star Wars, uh, but it was when they re-released the original trilogy with the digital edits in the 90s. And I don't remember seeing the movies, but I do remember going to Taco Bell to get the toys. When you buy a Taco Bell kids meal, you can get the R2-D2 Playscape, the Millennium Falcon Gyroscope, and more. You can collect all seven Star Wars toys at Taco Bell. And that was probably the first time that I realized, not just me, but everyone in the country at the same time could have explosive shits. It's just a little story about me. Hello and welcome to What's Tech, a podcast for TheVerge.com. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant, and today I am joined by my friend, a senior reporter at TheVerge.com, Mr. Brian Bishop. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we're both in New York right now in a very small room talking about uh, poopy. 
so really, <laughs> if you're in a car, maybe pull over. Well, don't. Pulling over is not always safe. So just keep driving. Everything is normal. Don't keep your eyes on the road. Don't think about any of the gross things that are going through your head. Uh, we are here to talk about Star Wars. Uh, because, and it, you can explain this to me before we even go any further. So I've been getting PR emails about September 4th being a Star Wars day. That's BS. May the 4th is already a BS day. It's like already the hallmark holiday of this stuff. How is there another one of these damn things? Well, this one is is Force Friday, which is even no. a shittier name than May the 4th Be With You, which at least I think started with at least like proper nerds, yeah. you know, where Force Friday is just like, hey, we need to tell like Target and Walmart that uh. they have a name for the time when all the new Star Wars toys for the new uh, movies come out. So it's obnoxious. I think it is the day, though, that we're finally going to go and know things beyond the two trailers that J.J. Abrams and company have deemed to share with everybody. Because once the toys are out there, I feel like everything's game. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that happened with the original movies, right? Where people pieced together the plots by looking at the uh, the training cards. Uh, well, that was like for, uh, um, well, yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. And then he kind of like echoed that with force awakens where they said, we're going to release like the first looks of the characters with these digital playing cards and a oh, app. Yeah. That's the same thing. Sure. Um, before we get any further down that road, let's, let's start at the beginning in, if you can do this in its most basic sense, what is star Wars? And we'll start with, I guess, just the original trilogy. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I was thinking about this question and there is, there is no one, right? There's no basic level. Like at the very, very beginning, um, star Wars was this kind of doofy space adventure about this farm kid named Luke who gets caught up in this intergalactic adventure and then ends up, you know, saving the universe. It was a, you know, based on flash Gordon serials and like this Kurosawa movie and it was, you know, uh, nobody thought it was going to be a big deal. And, and like it kind of like ended up taking off and becoming this thing. And over the years, it's become, you know, probably the closest thing to what we have, you know, to a modern mythology, right? You know, anywhere in the world, you can go and drop a Star Wars reference. You can talk about the Force and somebody's going to go and get what you're talking about. And that's given it this kind of vital cultural resonance that's pretty unique and set the standard for what most entertainment properties, and they try to do that, you know, we're going after. Even something like Marvel and DC, which are very, very storied in their own right, you could argue were never as mainstream to as many people in one moment as Star Wars became. And uh, so that gave it a universality that was, or universality that was very unique. Um, we're going to get to the, the tech part in, in just a moment, because there's, don't worry, the show's called What's Tech, I know. And we're going to really get into why this has to do with technology. There's something that just kind of bopped in my head that I, I'm curious, this is, a, this is a crackpot conspiracy theory, but I've always heard that uh, before, before Star Wars, George Lucas made THX 1138, yeah. uh, which is like this like very heady, just out of college sci-fi film uh, made with Francis Ford Coppola, uh, at least his production company. After that, he made a film called American Graffiti. And the rumor always was that he was speaking with uh, Francis Ford Coppola and said, I bet I can get an Oscar by just making the like worst pap that uh, the American public would want. And, and, and ever since I've heard that, I've secretly wondered if maybe Star Wars is the same. Because it's not as heady as THX 1138. <laughs> and when you talk about it as a modern mythology and you know how heavily he relied on things like... Um, the hero's journey and and, and yeah yeah, can you explain actually joseph campbell a little bit for people who don't know what that is yeah i mean yeah i mean the simplest way to think about it is that he defined you know um an an, i mean and wrote a book right called you know called the hero's journey and created this this mythic archetype that is consistent across you know he broke down various you know 
stories over history and like how there's a consistent framework there that Star Wars like basically cribs beat for beat and that includes you know an unknown he has to go and find a mentor figure he has to go and face himself there's a lot of you know it's talking about it now it's pretty obvious because so many stories especially superhero origin stories like just adopt the thing in full form um but he kind of like crystallized and lucas took it in a time where it maybe wasn't as obvious to everybody um you know later on you know the matrix is the other one i think that kind of does it like super literally as well yeah that's very 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 similar um but it's uh it's basically like a an archetype for you know broke down like why certain stories work some universal themes and concepts that seem to resonate across humans across cultures so that's why this is where my cynicism comes in because i wonder as somebody who was doing uh comparatively art- artistic or i guess uh experimental things before that that maybe just maybe and he'll never admit this that in just taking the thing that he knows is essentially the guarantee of success which it really it isn't i mean obviously if it was there'd be more star wars uh but but it's weird that it's been seen as this un- almost universally praised thing when it while also being recognized as a thing that is following a formula beat for beat yeah. to to become successful no, or to do a good job. And he like supposedly said at the time, like, I want to go and make a modern myth, right? Which is this this dual edge of Lucas, which is like that's wonderfully ambitious and fantastic that you want to do that. And it's also incredibly cynical, you know, and like yeah. there's so many things about the path of Star Wars that can be read in both of those ways. And I probably think they probably coexist because Lucas was, you know, very, very influenced by <clears throat> you know, foreign film, and that was kind of like his, his jam. But also, he liked what we would consider kind of crap sci-fi at the same yeah, time. He yeah. liked both things and how you marry those. Um, but you look back at, you know, Star Wars, it's very telling that amongst that original trilogy, and we'll get to this later, um, you know, that Star Wars, you know, its sequel is much more universally praised, and people like that a lot better. And Star Wars does not hold up as well as Empire, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's get into the technology, because I think there's going to be a duality here that we talk about. Um, for people who don't, know much about the behind the scenes of the first film what role did technology play in its creation yeah star wars was basically uh, um, a pioneer of visual effects and kind of launched in many ways we consider the the modern visual effects industry when they made this movie there had been movies about spaceships and that kind of stuff before um, but they pioneered this thing called you know uh, you know digitally controlled motion cam control cameras right so uh you know you couldn't go into space and shoot a camera so they created you know models of the Millennium falcon for example right but that model would actually be stationary on a, you know, against a blue screen on a blue stick. And then the camera would move around that to create the illusion that the camera was tracking a flying object. And they would do multiple passes on this. They do one for the object. They do one for its lights. They do one for a mat. And all this would be composited together uh, in an optical printer. And that was a huge, while there had been some sort of like motion control stuff before, on that kind of scale, it was a brand new deal and kind of opened up an entire new world of what you could do in terms of outer space movies. And, you know, and just, uh, uh, you know, special effects in general. And that was the start of industrial light and magic. At the time, it was just a warehouse in Van Nuys. Then they moved up to Northern California when Lucas started his empire. And everything kind of, like, kicked off from that. And so, in a way, it's uh, it was always a very technologically forward-thinking franchise, you know. And in later films, they would have, you know, additional, uh, you know, improvements and things like uh, in different techniques of doing stop-motion animation for things like the Ranker Monster or the Tauntauns and Hoth. Uh, so every new film was kind of, like, up in the game and what they could do, the number of shots... Is it is it like thinking about uh, film the way Pixar did in the '90s? I guess where I think of the advancements in computer animation in Pixar. I guess a little different in that they, from what I understand, chose stories around the technology they wanted to work on. But they're essentially moving 
you know, further and further down the field, bringing technology with them, saying, okay, now we're working on light. Now we're working on hair. Mm -hmm. We're figuring out new things. And then after this, everyone else is going to use these entirely self-created systems for special effects for the foreseeable future. Yeah, in a certain sense, and you talk to these visual effects guys that work in that field or earlier, and they didn't know how they were going to do any of these things. It'd be like, oh, we want to go make this thing happen. So it wasn't so much story. I mean, it wasn't... uh, uh, the film's being dictated by the technology. It was kind of like, here's this crazy idea, let's do it. And they, you know, they just like figured out ways to do it in maybe six months or a year before they could figure out a way to pull it off. But once that was done, that represented a new level of visual effects. Because this is all in the days before computer, right? It's all practical stuff. It's all physical cameras. It's all animation. It's all, you know, real things in real places. Okay, fast forward to the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, the films are being altered and changed in some way for a re-release. How is technology then being used this time around to uh, I, Im- improve for some people, maybe one person, uh, manipulate for another group of people? Right. Well, the great thing was Lucas came out and he said, uh, you know, well, I couldn't do the movies the way I really wanted to do them back in the day. So now with 1997's technology, I can do the real versions. Um, so he went back and added all those deleted scenes, different dialogue and changed everything with a, a veneer of like kind of shitty, frankly, in most cases, you know, CG in a- animation. And a lot of times it was the ships looked better, right? He could take that motion, you know, control camera stuff and make it with like a CG model ship and that would look better. But it was kind of too early for the character work he wanted to do. So you have a terrible job of the hut and you have those kind of things. You have unnecessary creatures where it felt like he was just kind of trying things to see if they could do them. It felt like it was a workshop for ILM, basically, and they could, didn't take what they learned on those projects that he was funding, and they could use it on other films and sell it to other people. Um, but the, the most offensive thing, I think, for fans, obviously, was when he would actually go and change story and content. The most, I think, nefarious being the whole Han Solo thing, where in the original film, you know, Han Solo is confronted by this bounty hunter named Greedo. Han Solo is a badass, so he shoots him first to get out of it. In the new version, Han Solo has to be like a gentle, cuddly bear, apparently. So Greedo shoots first, and then Honda shoots in self-defense. And it was kind of emblematic how Lucas was taking this technology and basically messing with what people thought, you know, was fairly sacred to them. Sure. Um, and, and now we're going to go to the final beat of this, which is happening right now for this original trilogy, which is, okay, people can't really find original prints. I mean, they can, but they are incredibly hard to come by from what I understand the the prints that fans have found are compiled from like multiple different sources uh but they also have the blu-rays and what people are doing is taking what is available to them these high quality blu-rays and the original prints as source and adjusting all of it and stripping these things out of the film uh and i'm curious how how they're doing that what like what technology is available to make that even possible. Yeah, it's it's interesting because they are pulling from crazy sources, you know, the Blu-ray, like random 16 millimeter transfers that people have, and they're connecting online to kind of like share these resources. Uh, and then it's, uh, in a large part, it's the advent of, you know, nonlinear editing software on your computer, right? Like Premiere or Final Cut Pro before it was terrible, you know, and all those kind of things. That is, that stuff that, you know, Lucas actually started in the 80s and kind of pioneered a, a nonlinear editing system called EditDroid way back in the day. That trickled down over years, over decades, and now it's on everybody's computer. And they're using that to kind of do what is essentially professional-level work and kind of revert these movies to what they were. And it's everything. It's from taking out effects. It's from compositing stuff. It's color timing. It's kind of like the whole production pipeline, but in somebody's laptop. And somehow in reverse. Right, right. Which which is 
mind-blowing. Yeah, and then there's the distribution aspect, right? Because of torrents and everything else on the internet, you can go and find it, you know? And then if you want to, you can burn it. Yeah, well, before the option was going to Canal Street on your one trip to New York and finding maybe a VHS tape in some shop and that not being especially good, but right. being the closest you had. Um, let, let's talk about remixes, because I guess that is maybe the, the additional beat of that. This idea that uh, on top of, it, it is the silly thing of uh, fans who want things to have a certain purity to them, but fans also want to remix and adjust in their own way too and recreate this culture. How has uh, some of this technology allowed fans to do that? And also what is Lucasfilm's, I guess Disney to some degrees now, reaction to this? Because I feel like I've heard it always. I feel like they've been warm and receptive, and I have also feel like I've heard about them as kind of this menacing force that does not allow any of it. It is both. I think they uh, have always been somewhat smart in that they know that the whole engine that makes this run is fans being insanely overzealous about their love for the property. Like, that's what makes it work, right? So they have to kind of go and nurture that while also, you know, I'm sure their legal team needs to go and, like, you know, protect their IP and all those traditional concerns. So it's interesting how it's worked. Uh, they've done a number of different things. A couple of years ago, they kind of saw, and I mean like 10 years ago, they saw what people were doing on YouTube and that kind of thing. So they said, hey, let's kind of like make this official. So they kind of uploaded all these official clips from the movies onto the StarWars.com website and said, hey, remix it, add your own stuff and upload it to our site and it'll be this cool thing. And everybody's like, great. But then people read the fine print and it's like, if you uploaded it, then all your work was, you know, owned by them. You couldn't even load it to YouTube or your own site if you sent it to them. So again, it's that thing, either... The generous reading is like, oh, that was the lawyers are trying to like, you know, cover everything, make sure it was good. And they were trying to give fans a cool thing or the nefarious read is they're trying to co-op this entire thriving, you know, young ecosystem of young creators that are inspired by the property. sell it back to them. Right, right. Which never happened. But, um, you know, they've gotten better recently, I'll say, because my favorite of like the fan remix thing is uh, this thing called Star Wars Uncut, where um, this guy basically did this huge collective online where people would claim 15 second scenes, essentially, of the movies recreate them animation shoot something new draw just whatever they wanted and they composited it all into this one you know fan generated version of the movie and that was something where several months after the guy kind of announced the project lucasfilm contacted him and they wanted to work together with him so you know they're trying to be collaborative when they can um because they know it's like they have to to a certain degree like you know they've i think especially now in more recent years after there was such a fan backlash after the prequels they're trying to go and make those people happy and i think that's playing into the force awakens promotion a lot too Let's talk about the prequels yeah. Um, and why they didn't work because of their tech. And, I, and I'm walk me through this read because I think it has a little bit to do with the same thing as the uh, adjusting the original trilogy. And it's that this we didn't know how to use CG, like really use CG until this summer. Like basically this year we are finally seeing... A, a pretty broad recognition that CG at its best is not meant to look like CG, that it is meant to layer on top of the real world in large capacity, or be designed, or that simply it's now good enough in terms of lighting, which is in the damn name for ILM, that that you can look at something and not mistake it for... CG that that it the, the, I think of the backgrounds in a show like Boardwalk Empire or even shows where you don't even notice it like some CSI and it's like oh well the, the entire background of this I think uh what was that show that Tina Fey did for Netflix oh, uh, 
can we shit? There's CG backgrounds in that show. And it's like, who would know that some funny sitcom on Netflix has CG backgrounds? So is that part of the issue? Like, they just, they went into it when it really wasn't meant to be used for this sort of thing yet? Yeah, and because there were two big innovations there in the prequels, right? There was like the overuse of CG and this idea that we can make movies basically in a room that's just a big green lounging area and then make everything in the computer. And there was also shooting digitally. Um, uh, so, you know, on the, the shooting digitally thing was very much a case of trying things way too early. Like they did a couple shots in secret in the Phantom Menace and then Attack of the Clones was the first movie to be shot digitally in its entirety, the first big production. But it was so early, like they shot it in 1080p, right? So the TV you buy from Best Buy today is, you know, is higher resolution than what like Attack of the Clones was shot in. That's just, that's not like, the right idea at the right time, right? Um, you know, but what is interesting about it though, is what they did figure out in their workflow in terms of like saying, we're going to treat it just like a normal film shoot, you know, that ended up setting the precedent for everything that's followed. So there was this weird bit of pioneering, but it was like a little bit too much too early. And I think the same thing was true, you know, like, like you talked about in the computer graphics situation where it's not only were they, you know, not really there yet, but also I think that was a case where Lucas let his ambitions to try to go and do fancy effects drive the drive, you know, what you were seeing in the film. There are scenes in that movie where there, there's so many shots of ships like landing and taking off in that movie just so we can see them do that. Like it makes no sense. And you watch the original films, that stuff was cut because it was expensive, right? Yeah. But suddenly like when he has its own, his own money and he can do it, like they get really, really luxurious with that. And, um, and, uh, and also there's the fact that shooting stuff in a green screen, green screen space like that for the actors, I think that it contributes tremendously to like the poor performances in those movies because you need something to work off of. And they hadn't figured out how to do that yet either. Do you think we as fans are kind of our own worst enemies in a way though, in that our, our, our gripes about the modifications to the original trilogy have probably been what stopped them from doing it a second time now? That it would probably look okay. Like if they went back and updated the original trilogy one more time and they're like, listen, we're going to do that again. And you know what? When the ships take off, they're actually going to have shadows. That was, it's a crazy idea, but shadows. So, so it doesn't look like they're just floating on top of the entire screen. That's an interesting question. Like, do you, I don't know if fans actually want that though. I feel like fans actually want the old school versions for, for the nostalgia of it. You know what I mean? I think that's the move. We are sick. Like that. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's like, that's the great thing is like, we hate this thing, but don't, don't adjust the thing we hate either. Like you got, you (laughs) got to keep that too. We, we have to be miserable and we're happy about that. That's where I thought. I watched uh, Jurassic Park recently and watched its Blu-ray, and I I really wish they would go back and for the CG daylight scenes re-CG it because mm-hmm. all the puppetry looks amazing. Anytime it's like at night with the raptors, it looks great. But there's a scene at the beginning where uh, they pull up and they see the brontosauruses for the first time, and it's supposed to be the most awe-inspiring moment where you totally buy into this idea, and it's what never gets accomplished in Jurassic World. But but. Uh, What's his name? Doctor, not Ian. The, whoever the main guy is, uh, he like pulls up and he takes off his glasses, and then we see from his POV these brontosaurus in the lake. But they they don't cause any ripple in the lake, and there's no shadows, and the light isn't actually hitting them appropriately, and they're behind trees, and there's no shadow from the tree. And you look at it, and you're like, 
this what is this like this is <laughs> it, 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 it's like this wildly dramatic Spielbergian moment and then it like cuts away and it looks like a Saturday morning cartoon on like some cheap knockoff Nickelodeon right and like why like this this just doesn't work at all anymore but that raises an interesting question too it's like should movies be artifacts of the moment in which they were created or should they be these continually updated texts that are always of the moment or can they be both yeah which seems like you know um, it shouldn't be that hard at this point to yeah. be able to offer people both, especially if they're already doing 3D conversions, right? Yeah. Like that for me with Jurassic Park was like, you already altered it. You go ahead and fix that scene. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll all be okay if you just that one scene. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The things that played best in the prequel, I mean, in the special editions were like, we're going to go and fix like this ugly matte blob or this weird, you know, thing here, these matte boxes here. Everybody liked that stuff. That was good. As long as you're not, if you're legitimately just tweaking you know, if you're correcting, I guess, yeah. is the thing. But if you're actually changing story, I think that's when people get really upset. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the upcoming films. Uh, we don't know what happens at, them in the, at this time. Uh, maybe we know a little bit. But we, 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 the, somebody's listening to this podcast a year after we record it, they think we're fools. Because they know this is the greatest Star Wars of all time, and we shouldn't even be bothered talking about the old ones, according to the person who painted the posters. Um... What what are they doing now? Is there a compromise basically between the prequel method and the original trilogy method in, in terms of how they're going to create the new films? There, I mean, there is. That's not the way they're selling it. It's very <laughs> interesting. the The whole like the biggest talking point of this thing, and it's a direct. I mean, I think it's a direct reaction to the prequels. Is like, hey, we love the originals. We're going back to the originals, just like you know, because we love them just like you guys do. So they're shooting on film. They're shooting on thirty five and IMAX. And also they're tatting like practical effects. So when Harrison Ford is sitting in Millennium Falcon, there's actually a Millennium Falcon set that, you know, he was in and they shot in, right? And that's great. That's going to look cool. Like everybody knows how it feels. And, you know, there's like, you know, real puppets. There's this behind, behind the scenes footage with Simon Pegg, like in a weird, crazy monster costume. And that has a, a, you know, visceral nature and a reality and an immediacy that we all kind of associate, not just with, you know, movie reality, but also this franchise in particular, right? But at the same time, look at the shot in the trailer of the Millennium Falcon being chased by a TIE fighter. Like, that's not a model necessarily. That's probably, there's going to be a ton of CG in this thing. And you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier. That's the best counterpoint because that movie worked because it melded both methods really, really well. It said like, okay, we know what works best for a puppet and we know what we can't do with the puppet and that's going to work best as CG. And that's what this movie is going to end up doing. Um, but right now they're just like banging the drum of practical, 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 even though it's not going to be as purely practical as I think they're making it out to be. Yeah. And nor does it necessarily need to be. I, I feel no, like Mad Max all. is the other example from this summer that's like, yeah. oh, wow, you really get it. And you go back and see their before and after shots. It's like, oh, I thought that was all practical. Yeah. And then you realize how much better it is with a little splash of CG. Right. Well, it's again, it's like, what is CG as a tool good for? Great for compositing, great for removing things. If you have to do like a dangerous stunt, you need wires. You know, it's great for creating like certain environments and it can be good for creating like great characters like Gollum, right? If you put the time into it and handle it in the proper way. And not every character is Gollum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't make a good if every character is Gollum. If the guy at like the diner is some sort of like elaborate CG dude, it's not, you just don't have the bandwidth to make it good. Yeah. Um, okay, one more thing I want to talk about before we wrap up. Uh, probably the single greatest triumph of uh, Star Wars and technology as they relate to one another. Uh, Star Tours. Um, first question. Well, actually, you know what? Set up Star Tours, the original mm-hmm. Star Tours, and then set up the new Star Tours. 
and then we'll discuss which one is superior. Okay. Well, it's actually, this is going to be the third Star Tours. Oh, God. Yeah, it's that bad. Um, 1987, uh, they release, you know, Star Tours at Disneyland, right? It's the first theme park ride that's not based on a Disney property. So, again, like leading the way in a lot of things that come in that front. But it's this basically, it was this motion simulator ride. A bunch of you get in there, you watch a screen, you're on some sort of, you know, crazy cruise to Endor when your flight gets co-opted by the Rebel Alliance, you attack the Death Star, and the thing moves along with the picture, so it feels like you're in a ship that's actually moving, even though there's not a whole lot of you know physical movement that creates the illusion of it. And it, uh, it was fun. It was a big hit. Everybody liked it. Um, the one in Orlando was better because they had a huge ad-ad outside, <laughs> you know? Um, but it did that really cool thing that Disney rides do well, where the line helped set up the story and brought you into the world. Anthony Daniels, the C-3PO, was there. And it just kind of, you know, created this entire experience of being immersed in that world that people really, really responded to. But a lot of stuff changes after that. So wait, 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 sorry, pause. Oh, yeah. Like, you said Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, was there. Yeah. You mean that, like, his, he recorded his voice. Oh, yes, yes. They didn't actually, like, I mean, I know, I know he needs some work, but it's <laughs> a really sad <laughs> image. He's so excited for the new trilogy to be back. He's like, oh, finally, I get to walk away from this ride and then sweat in the Orlando heat. <laughs> Something get me out of here. Yeah, no, he uh, he recorded the voice of C-3PO, and, uh, and Paul Rubens, P.B. Herman was, like, the pilot. Um, but, yeah, so they ended up closing it in, in 2010. Uh, and they re-updated it as Star Tours, The Adventure Continues, and which is a great title, right? Sure. It's a great name. Um, and that was largely to kind of go and update it, but also to incorporate stuff from the prequels. So at that point, um, they added 3D. They added a, a new kind of motion control system that was a bit more raucous and had, you know, combined to the benefit of making you puke a whole lot easier. At least that was my experience. Perfect. And, uh, and also it had like this branching narrative where depending on what happened and what, you know, computer decided what to do what you could do uh you know a different location or meet different characters there's something like 50 plus combinations i think so at d23 earlier this year they announced they're going to update it again with a new destination and more characters for star wars the force awakens so they haven't said Ah. where you're going to be going or what you're going to be doing or who you're going to meet exactly but um you know there's a couple of new worlds that are being discussed in the movie a lot of the movie takes place on the planet of jakku which looks like tatooine that seems like a good option um, but I don't know, you know, who knows what that event is going to be. Probably um, a sandworm. Probably thing. something stupid. As long as I don't I hit the pod racing thing, because yeah. that's the worst thing ever. Uh, see, I, I've had the pod racing thing. Yeah. And it was okay. Because uh, every other time I've done this, I've had the damn underwater land of Jar Jar Goofy Goof. Yeah, that's and worse. And that was, that's pretty, pretty real. Yeah. Do you like, how do you think, feel about the, the Wookiee planet where the Wookiee lands in the windshield? Yeah, it's, it's whatever. Yeah. Silly ass Wookiee, get off my windshield. That's how I feel about it. Get a job, Wookiee. Wookiees are so lazy. They just like hang w- out Wookie- like in the trees and don't do anything. But no, that's because they're the military industrial complex. You pay them a lot of money and don't have to use them very often. But yeah. when you do. They're ready to go. Wookiee with a gun. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. You have to open your mind a little bit. <laughs> Unless they get on your windshield, then just wipe them off. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. So- wait, wait, wait. No, before we, before we finish. Mm-hmm. Which one is the best one of these? Of the movies? Oh, the, no, the, oh, the Star no, Tours? I, everybody knows what movie is the best one. Return of the Jedi. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, I'm just fooling. I'm just playing. It's Attack of the Clones. Um, which, which, <laughs> which Star Tours is the best Star Tours? Original Star Tours was the best. Really? Yeah. Any reason why? Um, it gets a lot of points just for being fresh. I think it brought you into a battle you actually cared about from Return of the Jedi. Because, frankly, I don't care about Jar Jar's world. I don't really care about the Wookiee planet all that much. I definitely don't care about pod racing. Um, and I'd ra- you know, it, it, I want to be brought into the world of those movies. I think that's why that ride was so successful. And the other one, it's, you know, 
I mean, puking is fun, but that was cool for me. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it on. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Um, uh, thank you for listening. We are here every Tuesday. You can find us on TheVerge.com forward slash What's Tech. You can find us on iTunes for What's Tech. While you're there, do me a favor and leave a review. It goes a long way towards getting the show out to more people. But here's another thing that I, th- I think you might enjoy doing even more. You need to call your parents. You really do. It's been too long. They love you so much. And it's embarrassing that you haven't chatted. And while you're talking to them and saying that, you know, you owe them your eternal gratitude, say, in return, I'm going to introduce you to a show. It's called What's Tech by TheVerge.com. I know you haven't heard of that website, but that's irrelevant. I think you're going to like this show. It's going to teach you about Star Wars and Star Tours. And we have an episode about coffee and parents love coffee. So, So start pushing this on your parents. You're doing me a favor and you're doing them a favor because you never are too old to learn. And thank you to Wix.com. Today's episode was brought to you by Wix.com, used by 60 million people throughout the world. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites. With the drag-and-drop builder and hundreds of designer-made templates to choose from, you can get your website live today. It's easy and it's free. Go to Wix.com and create your stunning website today. Uh, thank you again for listening. We, uh, we will see you later. Bye. I just realized, are there any racial connotations to Wookiees? Because I'm saying you're lazy. Something feels like uh, it could no, be totally I, racist. I, 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 was, I, just I was thinking about that right when you said it, and that's why I went to the military okay. complex. Because I was like, I, I don't think there is any. But like so many like things get cross collateralized yeah, in that. Because like yeah, he just yeah. like, yeah. I, no, I, <laughs> I'm I, like, I, oh I, my God. I think panic. you're okay. I love that that's like where we are at though in terms of like I'm all for political correctness but it's like I called something lazy I have to really make sure that that's not going to